all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, where we discuss issues involving your children as they're growing up. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC and Program Director of the MedPeds Residency Program. Well, it's wintertime, and with it comes those nasty colds, coughs, and other infections. When your child gets a fever, what do you do about it? When is a cough serious, and what about all those viruses out there? How do you treat those, or can you treat them? We'll be talking about common and uncommon viral infections today, and we would love to hear any questions that you might have. You can share your comments and questions with us this morning by calling one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, Or you can send an email to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens from MPB Think Radio. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Arizona Senator John McCain is distancing himself from President-elect Donald Trump when it comes to Russia's alleged attempt to influence last year's presidential election. NPR's Scott Detrow has more from Capitol Hill, where McCain is chairing a hearing on the hacking effort. Trump has repeatedly questioned the U.S. intelligence community's conclusions on Russia's attempt to influence the election. But in recent days, he's tweeted several quotes from WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Questioning Director of National Intelligence James Clapper, McCain criticized Assange. And do you think that there's any credibility we should attach to this individual, given his record of... of, uh, Not my view. Not your view. McCain also said every American should be alarmed by Russia's attacks on our nation. Trump says it's time to move on from the hacking episode. Scott Detrow, NPR News, the Capitol. A ceasefire may be in effect in Syria, but the U.N. says its people are still blocked from getting help to millions of Syrians who've been trapped by several years of civil war. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports on frustration that's risen to a new level. A top U.N. advisor on Syria, Jan Egelin, says his teams have been denied access to five of the 21 locations they're seeking to aid. That's mostly in rural Damascus, but also homes in Hama. Even though the cessation of hostilities is largely holding in large parts of the country, Uh, uh, There are tremendous dramas for the civilian population still, and we are denied access still in too many places. Turkey and Russia brokered the latest cessation of hostilities and announced plans for peace talks later this month in Kazakhstan. U.N. envoy Stefan de Mistura says he hopes they can consolidate the truce. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Meanwhile, video of blown-out vehicles and shops are among the first images broadcast on Syrian state television. A car blew up in Jable, a government-held town in Latakia province. State media say nine people were killed. No one has claimed responsibility for the attack. The final monthly jobs report of 2016 comes out tomorrow in the U.S. Ahead of that, the payroll processor, ADP, is reporting a gain of 153,000 jobs in December. While the hospitality and health sectors picked up jobs, construction and manufacturing lost. 
Here's Moody's analytics chief economist, Mark Zandi. Strong value of the dollar, weak global economy is crimped uh, exports and uh, trade balances eroded, and that's weighed on manufacturing. The vehicle side of manufacturing is fine, obviously. Record year for vehicle sales. In November, ADP states that businesses added 215,000 jobs, the strongest performance since the summer. You're listening to NPR News. Unemployment claims are hovering around a historically low level, suggesting companies are likely to add jobs. The Labor Department found requests for assistance fell significantly last week, keeping overall claims well below the 300,000 threshold for 96 straight weeks. That is the longest streak since 1970. New guidelines are out today on when to introduce peanut-containing foods to young children. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports the recommendations are based on studies that show introducing peanuts to infants early on can help reduce the risk of an allergy. Parents of infants used to be told to hold off on introducing peanut-containing foods, sometimes until the toddler years, especially if there was a family history of allergies. Now the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology has new guidelines based on the findings of recent studies. Allergist Matthew Greenhot helped develop the guidelines. Now when we're saying introduce peanut to your child as early as four to six months of life, and by doing so, it's, it's associated with a reduced likelihood of developing peanut allergy. The guidelines recommend that children who have persistent eczema or egg allergy should be evaluated by an allergy specialist before being introduced to peanuts. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. Parts of the southern U.S. are bracing for a mix of snow, sleet, and rain that could make for a dangerous commute through tomorrow. Portions of Georgia, the Carolinas, and Alabama are under winter storm alerts this hour. Parts of Alabama are still recovering from a recent storm of heavy rain and at least one tornado that killed four people in that state. The Dow is down more than 100 points. This is NPR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include GNC, global provider of nutritional supplements committed to helping customers improve their quality of life. More than 4,000 of its stores will reopen this month with new products and programs. Learn more at hashtag OneNewGNC. Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app. Available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. I'm Terry Gross. Listen to Fresh Air weekdays at 3 on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at UMMC in Jackson. And we're going to be talking about an issue today that um, probably everybody's dealt with at one time or another, and that's viral infections. And what that means, there's so many misconceptions out there, but it's it's cold, uh, cold this weekend, too. You know, protect your kids, protect your, your cats. We're not used to all this stuff 
down here. Maybe even a little couple of snow flurries uh, tomorrow night. But, um, you know, as you get into the wintertime, we have different seasonal infections, particularly in pediatrics, that are common to kids uh, and teens, but uh, more so for the younger kids. And it's hard sometimes to figure out exactly what to do with all those symptoms and when is it more than just a viral infection. And certainly that's what your pediatrician is there for, to really uh, try to figure those things out. It's not easy for us all the time, as we'll find out. But uh, it's something that everybody has to deal with from time to time about, you know, when your kid gets that fever or maybe they've got a runny nose or a cough and uh, how long do you let that go? What do you do about it? And certainly there's a lot of misconceptions out there about how you treat those things. There's a lot of, you know, things that sometimes that doctors do that aren't quite up to the, the standard of practice, uh, particularly with the way things are changing. So we're going to be talking about viral infections this morning, and we'd love to hear any questions that you might have. I'm sure there is somebody out there that has a child or a grandparent or grandchild uh, that has one of these illnesses, or at least some signs and symptoms of those illnesses. And this is your chance to call in and get some free information. Uh, the number to call is... One eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or we'd love to hear from you by email if you would rather uh, contact us that way. And that is kids and teens at mpbonline dot org. So you know, perhaps a one place to start. You you hear these things all the time: virus, bacterial infection, strep infection, all these fancy words that us doctors learn over time. And you know, most people think that we learn this uh, terminology to confuse people. Uh, and you may feel like that if you're going to the physician. I was explaining something to a patient uh, just this past week. And uh, after I, I thought I was using some some common terminology, and after I got through, the patient said. Uh, now, can you explain that to me in common language? I had no idea what you just said. And, you know, sometimes we forget about that because of the way that we're trained, the way that we describe things to each other. Uh, it captures a little bit more, um, you know, uh, if I went and uh, talked to somebody fixing my car, I would probably be just as confused and uh, say, hey, tell me what, in common language for me, for the physician, could you let, explain that to me? So, you know, if we're talking about infections, there are a number of things that cause infections. Probably two of the biggest categories are bacteria and viruses. Now, bacteria are usually one-celled organisms. Um, they, um, they, there's tons of bacteria, millions and millions of different bacteria um, on the. I know that sounded a little Carl Sagan, didn't it? Billions and billions of bacteria all over the place. You can't get rid of these. And in fact, a very small number of these cause problems. The vast majority of bacteria are very useful to humans, to other animals, to the environment. They do all kinds of good stuff like break down bad things. Uh, I was uh, involved a long time ago with the Corps of Engineers right after college. I uh, had a short time that I worked for them in basic environmental research. And we were looking at different bacteria that actually broke down things like TNT. Yeah, the stuff that blows up. Uh, or uh, some of the more toxic compounds, chlorinated compounds. So bacteria can do all kinds of, of cool stuff. Only about 1% of bacteria actually cause disease in humans, if you look at all of them. So it's a very small amount of those, and some of those we depend upon in our bodies. For instance, the bacteria that are on our skin or in our mouths or nasal passages or in our gut, in our intestines. 
those all have a specific role in keeping us healthy and try, you know, actually breaking down certain uh, certain um, uh, foods that we eat, certain parts of that, and producing compounds that we need, like vitamin K, which is one of the the things that we need uh, to have a healthy coagulation system to be able to clot. Uh, when we have a um, have a cut on us, so bacteria are are out there now. Some of them do cause diseases. You know, there's common things, particularly with kids. Sometimes you'll have a bacterial infection on the skin, uh, usually, uh, or in the nasal passages or in the lungs. Uh, usually, it's from something happening to the immune system, or the immune system just hasn't seen this bacteria. And some bacteria are a little bit more aggressive than others, but a lot of times it's just the circumstances and it's not, you know, some, we try to say that it's preventable in a lot of cases and, and in a lot of cases it is, but in some cases you really can't prevent it, uh, particularly in kids that are sharing a lot of stuff. So that's bacteria. Bacteria can often live outside of the human body for a number of, for, you know, at least the ones that cause disease for a, a certain time period. Some of them can also live in other, you know, other animals or on other surfaces, and they can even um, reproduce. They can uh, multiply in number outside of the human body, most of them. Now, when we talk about viruses, viruses are also very small. They're much smaller usually than bacteria. Uh, in fact, if you had to compare them, say, to the width of a human hair, you could uh, they're about uh, 1,500 times smaller than that width. So they're very small, and they can have uh, a lot of, yeah, <laughs> that goes without saying, doesn't it? They're very, very small. Um, so you can't see them, uh, and they're very hard, even with a microscope, to see those viruses. Most of them we have to use other fancy microscopes, electron microscopes, or other ways to look at them or to detect them. Now, a virus is not technically, it's, a, it's similar to a bacteria, but it doesn't have the complexity of the bacteria because it's so small. And viruses depend upon what we call a host now, a host is not somebody who uh, opens the door and says, come on in, in this instance, but it's somebody or some other animal that the virus um, has a liking to and is dependent upon. And it goes even further than that. Most viruses are very particular, even in individuals, about the cells that they infect. And they usually are just, just have one or two cell types that they like to infect. And a virus cannot reproduce, cannot multiply in number unless it actually infects that cell, gets incorporated in that cell, and it sort of uses the cell's mechanisms and the way that the cell does different things uh, in its day-to-day activities to reproduce. And a lot of the symptoms that you have are very particular to what cells that virus infects and how it affects those cells. And it can be things that are self-limiting. A lot of viruses, in fact, most of the ones that we have from day to day are pretty benign. They don't cause a lot of problems. They're, they're nuisances for, uh, for sure. The, the symptoms that they produce uh, can uh, knock you down. Maybe it can prevent you from uh, doing the things that you normally do, like going to school or going to work. But they're usually self-limiting, meaning that they go away on their own. The body's immune system, over time, once it it detects that there's an infection, usually it will make antibodies against that. Now, there certainly are viruses uh, that are very dangerous. Um, you've heard on the news about Ebola, Zika virus, 
HIV, which is all those are, are different types of viruses that can cause some long-term damage and may or may not um, be successfully fought away by the immune system, particularly if you're talking about things like retroviruses like, um, like HIV. But there are some treatments for those particular viruses. The, the, biggest, the biggest thing I think that people don't understand is the differences between those. Now, if we go back to bacteria, uh, you know, if you have a strep throat that's caused by a bacteria, streptococcal bacteria, then the treatment for that, we have all kinds of different ways that we can treat that bacteria with antibiotics. And these are substances that were, uh, you know, first identified and developed since the early part of the of the 20th century in the early 1920s and 1930s. And we have different ones that treat different bacteria. And there was a lot of production of antibiotics all the way up until uh, really this the turn of this century, uh, the 21st century, but we've really exhausted a lot of the of the antibiotic choices that we have, and there really haven't been too many new antibiotics uh, that have come out in the last 10 or 15 years. So that sort of narrows how we can treat those. But antibiotics usually or almost always are just to treat bacteria. There are a few instances that we'll talk about in a little while of some treatments for viral infections. But those antibiotics, for instance, penicillin was one of the first uh, developed and is useful in treating uh, it, uh, its cousins are useful in treating things like a strep throat. But if if you don't have a back, that particular bacteria that's causing the infection and if it's caused by a virus, guess what? That antibiotic is going to be useless and it may cause some harm. There are certainly side effects with antibiotics. You can have an allergy to an antibiotic. And it can change the normal uh, the normal bacteria in your system. So those are some, some basic differences between viruses and bacteria. We're talking about viral infections this morning on Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. You can give us a call with any questions you have about the health of your children or your family by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 672 7464 Or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. When we come back, we're going to be talking about what does a doctor mean when he says you've just got a virus? Inauguration Day is right around the corner, and Chapter 1 of a new administration is set to begin. As stories take shape, NPR will be here with coverage you can depend on to help you make sense of it all. Listen every day. I'm Kara Miller. Every week on Innovation Hub, I talk with the thinkers, researchers, and visionaries who are crafting our future. Tune in to hear conversations about how tribalism shapes us, what new research on obesity reveals, how chicken changed America, and why math class should be reinvented. Coming Sunday, January 8th at noon, hear Innovation Hub on MPB Think Radio.
To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org. You're listening to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and we're talking about viral infections today, those nasty viruses that plague us during this time of year more than often uh, than uh, if you compare other times of the year. We'd love to hear from you this morning as we uh, talk about viral infections or other things that are concerning you of the health of your family. You can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. So something that's common, I bet everybody who's gone to the pediatrician, taking your child there, has heard this from time to time. And it may have sort of bothered you about what you heard. Uh, if your kid's sick and you take them there and the, your doctor examines the child and says, you know, I, um, I think that they just have a virus. And uh, I don't think that we need to do anything today. We need to just watch it. And uh, and then you're sent home. And sometimes uh, you may come away with different feelings about that. ran across a good article that somebody shared with me um, from the scientificparent.org. Good website. Got a lot of good questions on there that are answered for parents if you want to check it out. But this in particular, it was by Dr. Jamie Friedman. Uh, who's a pediatrician in California that talks about this, that what does it really mean when the pediatrician, when your doctor says it's just a virus? Now, sometimes parents in the room, when I've said that, they've said, what do you mean? I mean, what does that mean, just a virus? Does that mean that you're sort of blowing me off? Because that's sort of how people feel that way, that you're sort of ignoring some of the symptoms there. Uh, does it mean that you don't believe me that anything's going on and you're saying it's just something? Do you think it's something that could potentially get worse? There's really it's, – it's a little confusing about that. And generally what happens when a, pa- when a patient is in the room, let's say let's take a, a four-year-old with fever, for instance – um, I'll sit down and, and ask questions. Your doctor will ask questions about the symptoms that they're having, when the fever started, how long it's been going on, if there are any other symptoms like cough, runny nose, pulling at the ears, complaining of anything, appetite, normal activities. And then there's something else that we do that you may not be aware. So there's a lot of training in pediatrics uh, and other physicians who are trained to, uh, to diagnose uh, or uh, see children as patients. A lot of training on observation, and a lot of what we're doing when we're asking those questions, we're also looking at the child and trying to ascertain just how that child is acting. Are they, uh, you know, the the difference between sick and not sick? That's something that we're trained uh, to do quite often. Now, that doesn't mean if they're not sick that they're faking. Certainly, some teenagers might be doing that from time to time to get out of school. Other kids will do that. But what we're saying when we're saying they're not sick is they're, if they're sick, then we might think that there's a more serious infection going on. Um, or uh, if they're not sick, that means that this is something that's self-limiting. It's something that even though they have some nuisance symptoms uh, of fever or cough, that it will get better. Another thing to keep in mind is these viral infections that are so common during the year have certain patterns to them. Uh, for instance, a 
A classic one that you can get uh, when you're a kid is hand, foot, and mouth disease. This is caused by a virus called Coxsackie virus. And um, the, uh, the sort of pattern there is you get these little white bumps in the mouth or ulcers in the mouth. Um, and you can also get these on uh, your hands, the soles of, of your feet, and the palms of your hands. So it's hand, foot, and mouth disease, not something that's related to cattle disease or anything like that. That's just the, the pattern that you have. Usually accompanied with fever, can have a cough with it. So if we see that in the office, we'll say, you know what, I think this is hand, foot, and mouth. Um, this is caused by a particular virus. Unfortunately, we don't have anything that we can give to make this go away any faster or that would treat the viral infection. So what we normally do is treat these symptoms, and this is also called supportive therapy, uh, which means that just because it's a viral infection, we don't have a lot of the things uh, like antibiotics to treat that. Um, and it's it's ineffective to do that. Now, certainly, there's a lot of physicians, unfortunately, that will give antibiotics inappropriately uh, to uh, a lot of kids and adults who have th- some of these same symptoms. And because of that, that's one of the reasons why we have antibiotic resistance to a lot of the bacteria that we have now. And, uh, you know, it just uh, recently in the hospital had a patient with a extended-spectrum beta-lactamase uh, uh, UTI uh, or a, infection in the in the urinary tract, and that's because of antibiotic resistance. And some of the fears that we have is moving forward, you know, 10, 20 years, is we're not going to have a lot of the same antibiotic choices that we used to. They may be totally ineffective because of this emerging antibiotic resistance. So, you know, when you, you go back to that visit, then when you take your child in, And they say, you know, I really think this is a virus. Um, I think this is a viral infection by what I see, uh, by the symptoms that are going on. And I really don't think that we need to treat them with an antibiotic. They're actually protecting them and, you know, protecting kids in the future and adults as they grow up against some of the same uh, antibiotic resistance. Talking about viral infections this morning, we'd love to hear from you this morning about your questions. Doesn't have to be just about uh, viral infections, but anything that's uh, been burning in uh, in your brain that you need to ask. This is your chance to get some free advice from Dr. Jimmy. You can call us at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or you can email us at kids and teens at mpbonline.org. So, uh, you know, there are some viral infections that we actually have some agents to, you know, some some medications that we can treat. And those are, are rare. There's not a whole lot of them. Certainly, you know, HIV is one that we have a lot of medications that we can treat uh, the virus to try to slow down replication. That means just that the virus is increasing in number uh, to uh, to try to uh, treat the the HIV infection and, and a lot of a lot of good medications out there that have been very successful in doing that and uh, also some other things uh, varicella is another one uh, varicella causes uh, two different infections in humans uh, predominantly it causes chickenpox and then later on shingles there are some medications that we can give early on in the infection one is a cyclovir. Uh, that's an antiviral that can decrease 
the uh, the replication of that virus and uh, and uh, try to decrease some of the symptoms or how long you're going to have chicken pox. And there's a couple of others, too. One common one is the virus that causes fever blisters. It's a type of herpes virus. Uh, there's some medications that you can take for that, too, either orally or topically. So there are some uh, there are some uh, choices out there for those particular things, but unfortunately for some of those other, you know, some of those other infections, you really don't have a lot of choices with those when it comes to viral infections. So um, you know, some of the more common ones this year, there are some that can cause some problems if they go on long enough. For instance, a common one, particularly under the age of two. Uh, is a, a respiratory syncytial virus, and it can cause some prolonged symptoms, uh, uh, particularly in younger kids or kids that have uh, lung problems. Uh, if they were born prematurely, they can have a lot of problems with those. Let's go to Chris in uh, Arkansas, who has a question about viral infections. Good morning, Chris. Hi, good morning. Thanks for calling. Yeah, um, this past summer... I was um, visiting my in-laws in New Jersey, and on the drive up, got a, a throat tingle that progressively got worse and worse and worse, and I ended up going to a uh, walk-in clinic up there. And the doctor told me it was a virus um, and, you know, told me what, you know, what to take to ease the pain and, and treat it, but he also wrote me a prescription for uh, antibiotic and told me not to um, that it's a it's a, he, it's a virus, but just in case uh, you can fill this prescription in a week if if it doesn't clear up. And so I took his advice, and for four days, kind of suffered through um, what seemed to get worse and worse. And and finally, I just filled the script for the antibiotics, and immediately it cleared up. And so I'm wondering if I guess it's a two part question. Do doctors, some doctors and their hesitancy to prescribe antibiotics, sometimes diagnose a virus that they should have gone ahead and just given the antibiotics or, you know, perhaps might my virus have, might it have been a virus and I cleared it up with antibiotics? I just wasn't sure how that worked. Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. Um, That's exactly the kind of thing that we, you know, see in the office day in and day out. Um, so, uh, back to the first question, when you come in with symptoms like that, uh, we have a saying in, in teaching, you know, things, common things are common. So, uh, the most common thing with a presentation uh, like you had with some of the symptoms that you had would be a viral infection, particularly the time period. And time is, is one of those things that we look at. So we want to know when, you know, the symptoms started fever, cough, sore throat, Certainly there are some tests for different bacterial infections. So I'm not sure if, you know, if they did those uh, with you with uh, testing for uh, strep, uh, for strep throat. There's a rapid test and then there's a follow-up culture that they can do. And actually in adults, there's some criteria about when, when those are useful and when they're not. But if if your physician thinks it's a viral infection, which most of the time it is, if the symptoms haven't been going on a long time, it's okay to wait. Now, certainly in our society, that sounds like that's a, that's a bad thing to do is to wait and to suffer through uh, with those those types of symptoms. Uh, but it's actually, you know, it is a nuisance. Certainly, you want to get a well fast, but uh, you don't 
want to be treating a, a, a viral infection with a, an antibiotic for the reasons that we mentioned, just because of resistance, and it just doesn't work. So, um, so one of the thing that actually he did is something that uh, came out of a couple of trials, uh, a few trials looking at how to decrease the uh, the rate of giving you know antibiotics inappropriately for viral infections is one of the things you do is to wait around and if symptoms persist and he's right on the money you know usually that's about a week sometimes uh, depending on the symptoms they'll say we'll say two weeks um, and if you're still having symptoms at that point then I want you to take the antibiotic just because you know medicine is imprecise when it comes to viral infections or bacterial infections even sometimes, and things evolve over time that we really don't have good methods of saying, okay, here's the test, you do have this, you don't have this. Uh, and this is one of those times that you s- sort of have to see things over time. Now, if, if you know fever, those other symptoms, if they persist more than a week, then certainly you could take the antibiotic. I think probably in your case, one of either thing happened. Maybe you did have, and you can have both at the same time. You know, you can have a viral infection first, particularly if it involves some of the sinuses or, you know, if you're a kid, uh, they'll get a viral infection with a little bit of runny nose, and then you'll, they'll develop an ear infection after that. So mm-hmm. there is sort of a, a time lapse in that, and you could have very well had a viral illness first that developed a secondary bacterial infection later. Yeah, I actually blew an eardrum <laughs> that yeah. week because I was trying so hard to clear the pressure. Yeah, so that may, yeah, that may, in your case, that may be exactly what happened is you had a secondary, uh, and that's more of a, a secondary bacterial infection. That's more of a, uh, you sort of stop up the pipes that drain the, mm-hmm. the middle ear, uh, and same thing happens in the sinuses, and then you can have an overgrowth of those bacteria in there. So that may be one one thing that happened, or... You had a viral illness that just so, you know, sort of uh, coincidentally uh, started to go away about the same time that you started the antibiotic. And again, I mean, that's just that's we're sort of playing the odds on that a lot of times. And if you're, you know, not just as a kid, but as an adult too, how people look when they're presented with different with these different symptoms, when they present to the office, when they come in. That really drives a lot of this. You may feel terrible, but you may be the thousandth patient that I've seen over the last couple of years that had similar symptoms that turned out to be a virus. And, uh, you know, it, and we don't get it right. You know, that's, that's all the time. Uh, there are many times when we don't get it right. I've had to, uh, you know, you, particularly in pediatrics, you have to be com- comfortable with saying to, uh, to parents, Look, they might develop an ear infection. They don't look like they have one right now. If things change, please let me know. It's not a failure of the physician. It's just the limitations that we have. And yeah. certainly that's that's a better way to treat people than saying, you know what, I don't think they have an ear infection, but just in case, take this antibiotic. Yeah. So, yeah, it, doesn't, it, it, it is imprecise. And, and believe me, when you get out there and start treating people, once you get out of residency and medical school, there's a lot of uh, angst with this because there's a lot of pressure sometimes on treating with, with antibiotics. And people say they feel better sometimes after they treat them, even though it may not be the most appropriate thing. Yeah. So. Uh, All right, well, thank you. That, that, that cleared that up for me. Sure, sure. Thanks for calling, Chris. All right. You have a good day. You too. We're talking about viral infections this morning and sort of the differences in treating those and uh, uh, certainly uh, lots of different things we can do to to, uh, to prevent these. In fact, let's go to Mikey right now in Mobile who has a question about the spread of viruses. Good morning, Mikey. 
Hey, good morning. Thank you, Dr. Jimmy, for sure. taking my call. Um, uh, I got questions, you know, kind of general questions, um, general person, you know, everybody sort of stuff. Those um, are the best questions I know. <laughs> well, they're probably pretty simple, and I, I'm pretty sure that you know what to tell me. Um, uh, this time of year, when everybody's shopping, when there are the holidays, and then Mardi Gras coming up now here in Mobile, um, you know, that's, uh, but the shopping thing particularly, um, how how long, okay, generally, viruses, I know that not everyone lives the same amount of time. Um, when I go into, the, into a place where there is a shopping cart, of course, I wipe it down, and it's particularly the baby area. Because we are little boogers, you know, it's like, I mean, uh, well, boogers is the right word, I guess. Um, you know, they kind of chew on the handles sometimes, especially if they're teething. Right. And then there are diaper things on the flip-down part of it. I also wipe my purse and wipe my hands. Um, but I've found that I have had greater success, particularly when, when it's cold enough, Wearing those kinds of um, the, the sponge, you know, the the inexpensive gloves that you can buy that you just slip on, right? And and um, uh, in fact, keeping them on when I'm handling merchandise, when I'm handling the cart, when I'm handling anything, you know, uh, and taking them off only when I need to, you know, take something like money, which is the dirtiest thing of all, of course, out. Um, but I found that I've had greater success in not catching whatever the local viruses are, which gets back to my first question. Uh, I'm sorry I took the roundabout way, but I had to explain it all to you, what I was trying to think of, about. Um, uh, how long do viruses live? And does this, the wearing of these, uh, you know the kind of gloves I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think I know what you're talking about. So these are general purpose uh, are they are they sort of elastic or are they, uh, you know, uh, latex or something similar to that? things you know it's like um and uh you can you can buy them for adults and children right and, uh, um, yes sir um can you can you help yeah. me and I'll, I'll hang up and listen because i know that you'll explain it extremely well sure sure I'll, I'll do my best mike thank you for calling so that's that brings up a good point about the prevention of viral infections this is probably the best way other than immunizations to prevent a viral infection uh you know <laughs> One of the, the things that my old uh, pediatrician when I was a kid said to us that I remember, he said, uh, particularly during the winter months, stay away from sick people. And uh, that, that may sound pretty simple, but if you know somebody's sick, not being around them, that's, uh, you know, that's probably the best way to, to prevent things. Now, viruses are spread in different ways. Uh, different viruses, they like to hang out in different uh, types of environments. Some of them are aerosolized, which means that they're in the air. They're in the air we breathe. They're all around us. Some of them are very contagious. For instance, the measles virus, the virus that causes measles, which we have some out, outbreaks every once in a while in some areas, is very contagious. It's, uh, it's aerosolized from when a uh, patient coughs or sneezes, and those little particles get blown out into the room and you really can't see those and they they hang around for a long period of time varicella virus also does that so the virus that causes chicken pox and shingles uh or at least chicken pox in that case uh it's very contagious so you really you know there's no barrier method um uh, other than you know unless you go to a hospital type situation where there's a gloves gown mask type situation if somebody is known to have that 
But others travel on different size particles, and certainly there are a lot that like to live in and around the nose and mouth. And those are transmitted uh, through those secretions. So if somebody coughs or sneezes, maybe they cough into their hand and they put their hand somewhere, transfer it back and forth. And I think that's the thing that you're talking about the most, Mikey, is those, you know, all those uh, grocery carts and other things that we put our hands on, doorknobs or another one, um, uh, and money. Yeah, lots of and money, lots of lots of different uh, ways that uh, that you and, you know, Cell phones, that's a big one, too. Uh, even as a physician, you know, I, I routinely, uh, we have foam in our hospital system, and uh, we have anti- antibiotic foam that we use an antiviral foam, uh, and I foam up my, uh, and uh, wipe down my stethoscope as well. I've heard money is the, is like the dirtiest thing. You know, Because I it passes through so many different hands, right. and it never gets washed or anything like, well, unless you Some leave people, it in your clothes by mistake when you wash them. Yeah, but uh, unless you're a money yeah. launderer. <laughs> Joke of the day. Where's Sam when I need, uh, you know, but I'm ching. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, so there, there, you know, you can, you can, uh, if you swab it and then, um, one of the things we did in college in microbiology, uh, was we took a petri dish, and that's just a dish that bacteria and viruses and mold, all kinds of different things can grow in. Uh, and we, we put it in our dorm room, uh, with it open. Uh, in the uh, you know the air that came out in the in the central air conditioning, and then we took it back to see what would grow on it, and it was the nastiest stuff you've ever seen. So there's all kinds of things out there, which really just you know tells you how well our immune system deals with those things. But yeah, money maybe yeah it's it actually it's it depends on a lot of things and the substance that it's on. So certain viruses they like you know substances that they can stay moist if they dry out that might kill them. And, you know, Mikey asked, too, about how long do they last on those surfaces, and it really depends on the virus. There are some viruses that don't last very long at all. Uh, if you take HIV, for instance, even on a surface, once, once it dries out, even if it's in blood, uh, you know, or other uh, body, bodily fluids, they, um, it, it's not there for a long period of time. Certainly an enterovirus, adenoviruses, they can hang on for hours, sometimes afterwards, those are the viruses that can cause some of the upper respiratory infections. Flu virus is another one that can hang out for a long period of time. But it depends on a number of things, on the humidity in the air and, um, you know, the surface that they're on. I think it's fine if, it, you know, the best thing is to avoid those situations, uh, you know, if you can, uh, particularly if you have a lowered immune system, if you're on medications, if you're elderly, uh, young kids, although that's a challenge because they're putting everything in their mouth. But uh, in general, if you'll just wash your hands with soap and water after you touch those surfaces, what generally happens, and particularly during the winter, we get runny noses, a finger or a hand goes up to the nose, and you've already touched something. I mean, let's be honest, it happens. So, you know, those kinds of things spread those viruses during the winter. Um, so it's, you know, it's common. You can certainly wear gloves. The, the trick there is when you, when you take them off, you want to throw them away. You can't reuse those uh, very well. You can't really, I guess you could wash them, but it's not very practical to do that. But, you know, I think if, if you have a lot of, either if you're immunocompromised, if your immune system has been suppressed from something and your physician has told you, you know, that probably would be a good idea, then certainly I would do that. But keep in mind, that's not going to prevent all infections. And probably the best thing to do is, just like your mom and your grandmother told you, wash your hands, don't put your fingers in your nose, and, uh, you know, that uh, just sort of keep your hands off your face. 
uh, particularly if you're out. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to go to Lisa in Clinton, who has a question about hand sanitizer. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We'll be right back after this. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app. Available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The U.S. voted for Trump. French conservatives voted for François Fillon as their presidential nominee. Very few polls foretold those results, or Britain voting to leave the EU. There were people voting who normally were seething with resentment but couldn't be bothered to go out and cast their ballots. So they were, in a way, unidentified by the pollsters. Why so many polls got so much wrong later on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org. You're listening to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and we're talking about viruses. They're everywhere. Just kidding. Uh, How do you prevent them? How do you treat them if you can treat them? Lots of good questions this morning. And let's go to Lisa in Clinton, who has a question about the overuse of hand sanitizer. Good morning, Lisa. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you for calling. Hey, um, I have a question. I'm an elementary school teacher. Uh Uh-huh. And... um, the hand sanitizer just flows like water. We use a lot of it because it's such a breeding ground for illness, and um, elementary kids aren't always mindful about germs. Uh, so that's a, that's I, an understatement. They're, they're, <laughs> it never question, enters their mind. <laughs> does overuse of hand sanitizer um, create a resistance? Uh, oh, that's a great, a great question. So, uh, yes, yeah, hand sanitizers. I'm actually looking at one. I'm looking at one in the studio in front of me, and then in front of it is a Lysol can. So, uh, right. <laughs> it's inter- exactly. And uh, yeah, teachers. Uh, I have a good friend of mine who's a teacher, and she says she sort of likes to come home. Uh, and by just... the way, that's all courtesy of uh, Sharita Brent, uh, who is currently <laughs> sick. Oh, maybe there's a correlation there that, between the irony. overuse yeah, of, of all those things. Not, not to uh, contradict any of your science going on That's right, right now. It, we'll have to study that right. at MPB. <laughs> all right. So, Lisa, yeah. So, um, so, you know, there is – it's not 
there have been some studies about how useful that the hand sanitizers are, and they're a bit, if you look at the advertising, they're not quite as successful as, uh, you know, that's, that shouldn't come as a surprise. There are a lot of things out there that are touted to be more successful than they are. So it won't kill everything, um, and, but it does cut down on the, the amount. Now, those type of hand sanitizers, um, they have substances in them that are different from antibiotics. And they kill um, either the bacteria or viral particles in different ways so that they can't uh, develop resistance to those over time. So you're not going to you know, develop resistance uh, in your school and other places, daycares, by doing that. Clorox wipes, same kind of thing. So all those active ingredients in those, they kill uh, by other means. Now, I will say that um, there is still... A great, you know, it's it's a little bit easier to use those things, but those um, hand sanitizers because you can carry them with you. They're in gel form. Uh, you don't have to have access to a sink or water. But if you look at, it's interesting. Still, soap and water, just plain soap and water. Don't even have to be antibacterial soap. In fact, there's been some studies on just using water alone with vigorous scrubbing for 30 seconds will kill just about everything that you came into contact with on your hands, uh, at least for an amount of time. I, you know, I might do that, you know, throughout the day, just frequently. Of course, you know, there's some problems with that, too. In the healthcare industry, we, we run into this problem, particularly in the ICU, uh, that, uh, you know, a lot of the nurses and physicians, their hands look terrible. I mean, they're cracked open and everything from frequent washings and, and what we use to disinfect our hands. So a lot of us are, you know, a lot of places are, have gone to foam, which doesn't dry your hands out, and it's pretty useful. There are a couple of, of things, one in particular called uh, Clostridium difficile. That's a, a bacteria uh, that causes uh, pretty serious diarrhea uh, in some patients, and uh, you can't kill that with the foam. You have to, it's, it's very tough, and you have to uh, use soap and water. But that's not something that would be in a school system like that, so... Yeah, overuse, you know, I would just, you don't have to overdo it every time you touch a child, do that, you know, but um, but certainly, it, you you know, throughout the day, it can decrease the, the risk there, uh, even if Sherita Brent is sick right now. So, uh, so <laughs> Jay's called her out. I'm just doing it, too. Uh, but, yeah, I think that's probably a, a good thing to do. Okay, thanks. Sure, thanks for calling. We're talking about viral infections, how you might prevent those, and uh, some of the, the things to watch out for for more serious infections. We're going to go to Chris in Jackson, who has a question about a four-year-old. Good morning, Chris. Hi, how are you? Good. Thanks for calling. Uh, I've got a uh, problem with my son. He's been complaining about his mouth hurting for, I don't know, last four or five days. And he said it was his tooth at first, and he said it was his gum. And I had the bright idea of turning his lip up. Uh, this morning, and he's got a sore on the inside of his lip, um, you know, maybe about the size of the fingernail on my smallest finger. Uh-huh. Um, and I'd spoken to um, uh, someone at a dentist office earlier this morning, and, and from what I described, they said that they thought it was a, a canker sore and that I should just let it run its course. Um, but, um, you know, this is my first child, and it's not something I've had to deal with before, so I wasn't sure if I needed to take him to the doctor just to be sure that's what it was or, you know, give right. him a few more days and 
wait and see. But you know, he, he complains about it. You know, and you know, every day when I brush his teeth, and I, right. I can see why now that I, I found the spot. Yeah, and that's uh, it. Sounds those are very common. Uh, they're also called aphthous ulcers. Aphthous ulcers. Mm-hmm. So that's just a fancy name for them for a canker sore. Most of those are uh, caused by viral infections in the mouth. There's a couple of different viruses that do that. Some of them are similar to the viruses that can cause uh, fever blisters. Um, and some people are more susceptible to getting those type of infections than the fever blisters. So it's interesting how those, uh, you know, sort of present differently on dif- different people. I think wow. your dentist is, is right on the money, though. Uh, there's not much you can do for these. You know, uh, we used to cauterize these, actually, dentists and sometimes pediatricians with um, what's a, called a silver nitrate stick, and it really just sort of cauterized that area. It hurt like the Dickens uh, to do it. So we sort of we haven't really done that a whole lot. Uh, yeah, there, I don't want to put it through that. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't either. But there's not really anything you can do other than symptomatic care. Um, you know, and certainly the the problem with that is it's raw skin on the inside of the of the lip there, uh, and yeah, it just has yeah. to heal up. You know, heal up as the as the virus goes away. But there's not anything. really. I can get him to like rinse his mouth out with that'll help with the pain at all. Yeah, there there's some there are some mouthwashes that can do that. Um uh there's some that have biotin in them that sort of it, it tastes terrible though. Uh but they, you know, they've there's not a whole lot of data in that that it, it does anything other than just symptomatic care. Uh some of the lidocaine, over the counter lidocaine rinses might help and you don't have to use a whole lot of that if you just spray it right on the area itself. And that just okay. that just deadens those nerve fibers there, uh, sort of makes it numb. Um, and but just washing out with water could help too. Sometimes just things that you know would burn a, a raw skin in the mouth. Uh, just washing out with cold water uh, would be fine. Okay. I, I think they told me maybe you know ten fifteen days it should run its course. Does yeah, that sounds about right. right. Yeah, usually about anywhere from a, a week to two weeks, and it should go away. If it doesn't, then you need to you know need to, to at that point either go to your dentist or your pediatrician just to to see if uh, it's something different. But that it sounds like that's what it is. Okay, I'm, I'm guessing it's been at least five days. Should I expect it to get any worse between now and then? Uh, no, usually by this, that point, it, it's pretty much reached the, the maximum. Unless, you know, these things pop up for different reasons. A lot of times it's it's stressful situations or sometimes other illnesses. So anything that changes the body's natural immune you know, response to things. Now, in kids, it's a little bit different because they're just exposed to it for the first time. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't. I wouldn't expect that it would get any worse at this point. It's probably going to be about the same for about another week or so. Should I should I try to use it as a, another excuse to get him to stop sucking his thumb? <laughs> I whatever you can leverage on that. Yeah, that would be a great thing. Okay. <laughs> I'll, and, I'll let you. I, while I'm thinking about it, do you have any suggestions for that? Yeah, that's a tough one. So behavioral modification for thumb sucking is is tricky. And it depends on the individual child. Sometimes you can get away with uh, just a reward system for that. Um, you know, if you have a child that's very motivated, four-year-old, uh, they're not going to be thinking about it a whole lot. And the problem is, like any kind of habit that you get into, and they use this as a comfort. You know, anytime that they get yeah. stressed out or just sitting around, they may suck their thumb. Some of the it stuff is just sleep-related. It, you know, oh, it's sleep. Yeah. To go to sleep. You know, have you used? That's, that's, 
have you used any of those things to coat the thumb? Like the they make some over the counter remedies to sort of coat it with some nasty tasting stuff or pepper, you know, pepper uh, you know, stuff. I, I, I thought about doing that. I just I, I wasn't sure if that was cruel and unusual punishment <laughs> or whether it was really a, a good idea. Yeah, it, it, I, you know, I let I usually let parents be the judge of that. It, some people do think it's successful. Now, certainly, while he has this sore on his lip, I wouldn't do any of that. But uh, okay. you know. Right. Right. Uh, we, that would be terrible to, to paint it with something that's nasty tasting and then have it, uh, having put it in his mouth, but, you know, uh, taping it up, uh, you know, maybe putting some band-aids on it or something. Uh, you know, of course they can, four-year-olds, it's pretty easy for them to take that off. Uh, there's all kinds yeah. of different things you can do. Uh, most of the time it's, it's more of a nuisance to us as parents or grandparents to, you know, to, to, we can't stand it, um, particularly in an older child. Concerned about him developing an an overbite. Right. And, um, you know, his, he only sucks one thumb and it looks a little flatter than his other one. Uh, yeah, the thumb does. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably just soft tissue changes. Uh, if he's just, you know, it's really can't do much to bone structure that way with the thumb. And there, and there may be some, you know, four-year-old, we're still got some, some other, you know, the, the probably not doing a whole lot of damage to the, to his, uh, teeth or his, you know, the, the, uh, malalignment of the teeth at this point. But, um, you know, your dentist can give you some, some input on that, but I'd, I'd just try out a simple modification system of, you know, sort of reward system if he's not doing that. All right. Thank you, Chris, for calling in and uh, asking us that question. Certainly it's very common to get, uh, aptus ulcers. Um, we already talked about Coxsackie virus causing hand, foot, and mouth disease. Rashes are another thing. So, you know, rashes are very common with viral infections, and they usually pop out, uh, you know, early on in the in the infectious process or midway through the infectious process, depending on the virus, uh, can be associated with fever. And they also have different patterns. So sometimes the patterns, particularly when you catch it. Now, if you catch it early, it may not have this, you know, the pattern that the your physician can definitively say okay well this is uh this is pretty particular for this type of viruses virus but but they can be helpful in in trying to differentiate between a viral infection and a bacterial infection Uh, one of our previous callers did uh, mention giving a prescription some pediatricians might do that particularly for ear infection so there was a a what was called a snap protocol several years ago um, that looked at uh looked at a study of decreasing the the amount of usage of these it turns out that ear infection is very difficult for us to diagnose and treat, and sometimes they're caused by a virus uh, that sort of stops up the pipes, the drainage system to the middle ear that's behind the eardrum when you're looking at it from the outside in the ear canal. And that can change how the eardrum looks. It can certainly cause pain. Uh, if you think about a similar situation, if you've been flying in an aircraft and you may have had a runny nose, maybe a little bit of allergy symptoms, and uh, as that plane gets to altitude, as the pressure changes, the cabin is pressurized, certainly. But a lot of people don't know that that cabin's pressurized to about 8,000 feet. Uh, so you still have those changes within that cabin. Uh, so uh, that can cause some pain. And that's the same thing that uh, that can be caused with those changes in a youngster that has a viral infection that's sort of stopping up that drainage system. And sometimes medications that help to reduce that inflammation in the back of the throat or decrease the secretions can help more than an antibiotic. And some pediatricians might give you an antibiotic prescription to say, you know, look, this is not a bacterial ear infection at this point, but it could be in the future. And uh, that's at least one way to prevent those uh, overuse of, of antibiotics. 
Well, that's all the time we have for today. This has been Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. It's a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from the members of the Foundation for Public Broadcasting in Mississippi. Today's show was engineered by Jay White. I'm Dr. Jimmy. You can join us next Thursday at 11 o'clock for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. And stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now, coming up next on NPB Think Radio. Underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy on the go with the My Blue Mobile app. More at bcbsms.com. A cold front with moisture associated with it and cold air. All the ingredients we need for a chance of some snowfall across Mississippi over the next 24 to 48 hours. Some of our northern counties may pick up a little light snow or flurry activity this afternoon, but the bulk of the light snow will.